Why does someone leave the religion they were born into? What causes people to convert to a new belief system? What goes on inside a high-demand religion? Listen to the experiences of ordinary people as they answer those questions and more. Hello and welcome to Chrysalis Podcast. I'm Stacy, and today we're going to be interviewing Dresden. Hey Dresden, where are you coming from? I live in New York. There's five boroughs in New York. Uh, I live in Queens. Oh, okay. All right, great. And what was the name of the group that you belong to? It was called Bethany Apostolic Church. Okay, so you were an apostolic Pentecostal. And how big was the congregation that you belong to? Oh, it was like less than less than 100, oh, but somewhere small. in that ballpark. I want to say 80 people, maybe. Oh, okay, wow. Um, but we were like a part of a network of apostolic churches of the same. It's of a similar culture, closely culturally tied to the Caribbean. So the people who you call brother, sister, it extended far beyond just that, those immediate 80 people. It was like people in Canada, people in, you know, Jamaica. Okay. All right. So about a hundred people in your congregation, would you say it was a tight knit community? Yeah, I would say so. And how many times a week did you meet? Once a week for pretty much the whole day. Like you, I wake up at eight o'clock in the morning and wouldn't leave until maybe 12, one o'clock at night. Wow. The services were really like amped up emotionally. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, like I was in the youth service was usually on Friday or so. Mm -hmm. um, occasionally they would have like the Jesus camp type, you know, scenarios, summer long sure. things. Like yeah. a summer camp? Yeah. Okay. So you started when you... Yeah, I started, we started going there when I was about eight years old, because I remember the church before, which was a lot, a lot nicer. It closed down. I just remember being like so freaked out initially when we first got there. So yeah, that would have been around eight, but I really didn't start taking things seriously until a few years later. Right, right. Well, you were still a kid. You were pretty young. Right. Okay. Why were you freaked out? Was it just really much less nice or... It was so just off to me. Me, like I was my family kind of grew up Christian but the type of Christianity that I was exposed to it was an assemblies of God denomination but it was of the more you know loving Jesus meek and mild it wasn't like the heavy fire and brimstone and just like speaking in tongues stuff which I'm sure we'll get into later right <laughs> so yeah. so more of like your usual type of Protestantism get more average Protestant type of service and then you go to Pentecostalism which is super emotional and that kind of thing right I could see that being pretty freaky especially for a kid going into something like that so you were in it until how old I was in it until I want to say 15, but I hadn't really left Christianity, religion in general until I was like 16. Okay. Yeah. So what would a, a typical service look like? You said it was about four or five hours of your day. That's an awfully long time. Yeah, like typically what would happen is I would wake up from like eight o'clock in the morning, then from nine o'clock to about 11, it would be Sunday school, hour break, 12 to three, four o'clock in the evening. It was the main service. And then after that, it was another break for dinner. And then five, six o'clock till it might have started at about seven, seven to 12. But yeah, typically like huge chunks of time, you know, wow. services wow. that a typical service would pretty much start off with worship. And then once like the quote, 
quote unquote spirit starts to move you know mm -hmm. it would that worship could take up two hours like it was like a rock concert pretty much and then the main preaching would happen and the preaching could go into a song that would take up another 15 minutes and then keep preaching and that could that could last for like another two hours you know if the guy was like really charismatic about it right well it doesn't sound boring no no there, there's definitely had some very intense spiritual experiences but those mm -hmm. it's a very manipulative environment those things are naturally gonna you know occur right right i've interviewed one other person who was part of a pentecostal church and um she she mentioned the same thing about how how emotionally amped up the services are and it does sound that way for sure so would you say most of your friends were part of the community or did you also have friends outside of the church i did not have friends outside but it wasn't i was homeschooled or anything right just more that i was expected to be close to the kids my age in that in that setting and mm -hmm. it was strongly discouraged for me to associate with anyone outside of that group when you say strongly discouraged how 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 was that phrase fire and brimstone cause for suspicion oh you know people are going to lead you astray that type of thing fear mongering pretty much right some bible verses were thrown at you so, <laughs> so they they would say that if you had i know jehovah's witnesses for example they call them worldly people like if you're outside mm -hmm. of the group would you say that anyone who's not one of us they might give you bad influences and you might not even know how far you're getting mm -hmm. until it's too late sort of thing yeah it's it's funny how like there are, there are parallels but that run through. Definitely there was, you know, reprobates or the backslidden or I didn't really hear the word apostate too much, but that was definitely in our vocabulary. Right. So apostate was... Them. Okay. But you can't be excommunicated with Pentecostalism. Is that is that accurate to say? It wasn't as standardized, but it was basically, there was a label like, oh, you're backslidden, a formal process. It's just like, oh, this person, we hear news that he's not keeping okay. up to code. Yeah. So it would pass through the community and they would just know to Pretty avoid much. you. Okay. Yeah. I see. So you said there were Bible camps. What would that look like a week, two weeks? Oh, gosh. Yeah, it would start. It was called convention. They had all these. Oh, convention. Um, okay. I realize now that the the other person I interviewed, she mentioned going to convention also like, mm -hmm. on the weekends and things like that. So I guess that's also like a during the school year fair. Yeah, occasionally, like the, it depends on like what they're trying, what event they're trying to hype up. But conventions during like the Bible camp, it would be like two weeks. And I remember it used to always be like the hottest week in the summer to me. <laughs> and it's this very tiny church and you're packed in with all these people and they're having convulsions on the floor. They're rolling around. They're like, oh my gosh, screaming, telling you're gonna, you're gonna burn in hell forever and always. And it's like, I just remember getting out of those services feeling just sticky and awful and humiliated. But yeah, it was like two weeks long, like literally every single day for two weeks. Wait, so someone's in the service, they're, this is the picture, they're mm. having convulsions on the floor and screaming that everybody's going to go and burn in hell. Sorry, it's. It, I, I'm sorry if I'm doing a bad job of describing no, it. No, you're doing. Like, you're doing a great job. I'm just trying to clarify. It's like that doesn't even make any sense because you're talking to the worshipers, right? Like they're they're supposed like the people there are the same. It's a think. very it's a very chaotic picture to paint, but I'm going to try my best to paint it for you. Yeah. So a convention typically it's like you have the pastor and then you have all of the networking churches that come together for this convention. Okay. So. 
if my church is the chosen location for that year, people from Canada come in, their pastor speaks one night, my pastor goes another night, different members of the church who are like really high up, they're the ones typically leading throughout okay. the convention. All right. And typically it takes on the same sort of structure that I laid out, worship service, preaching, et cetera. Right. But it's more geared toward the youth. So there's day activities too. They, they want to they wanna brainwash you good and well, you know? And then it leads into the evening where things get more really, really intense. Okay. So they have activities for, for you guys as a group so you could socialize, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then there's you all like go. There's like Men's Day, Women's Day, Mothers. They, they kind of target each group for each day. All yeah. right. So aside from the services and the conventions, were you asked to do any like missionary work or door to door or? Oh, you were. Okay. Yeah, definitely. We would have these things called outreach services. They would happen, I don't know, maybe twice, twice a year uh -huh. where like we were expected to hand out flyers on the streets. I even did some, some like open air preaching. I did a lot of preaching. I was very involved youth. I was sort of a role model of sorts, very like type A in the cult. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So like the typical missionary work of preaching and flying, handing out flyers. It's not an uncommon story that people who are very involved and very believing are, they're also the people who sometimes leave just because they do take it so seriously. Right. So the services lasted about five hours. You had convention, you had your summer convention. A couple of times a year, we're doing outreach. Uh, were you going to public school? Or? Yeah, I was definitely, I was not homeschooled. I wasn't as sheltered as some people are. Right. Um, but I guess helped, but I'm not really sure because, again, the conditioning that I got was so strict. It was like, right. I practically wasn't even involved in the public school system. Right. I was still getting good grades, but that was just to like put put on a front, you know, this was like my school side, my, my church life, that was of prime importance, you know. Right. You wouldn't be involved in any extracurriculars or hanging out with your friends. And no, again, it was we, we couldn't go to the movies. We couldn't have social media. We couldn't listen to secular music. No like, TV. Even even TV. It was like it had to be Christian related. Yeah. Like I was a very artistic child, but it's they have these terms. Like, if you're doing something for the flesh or for the spirit, you shouldn't do you should only do these things to glorify God. That type of thing. I cannot even imagine a child growing up with no TV. No, you know, I mean, in a way, it sounds like a good thing, but not knowing any of the pop culture stuff that must be hard getting older and people referencing stuff from your childhood, you know, yeah. I would think that would be kind of strange. There, there was a TV and don't get me wrong, like I still didn't sinned by watching Disney or whatever right. it was. I'm, I'm still like aware of certain things, but there are definitely like gaps in my knowledge. Right. No, I didn't mean that to say I was skeptical. Were you allowed to read pretty much anything? Um, yeah, but again, they had so like terrorized me with fear and oh, is the rapture gonna happen on this day? Is Jesus coming back? You don't want to be doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. So right. it's best you just sort of if you're gonna read a book, read read the Bible. Be careful of like any Harry Potter, any secular stuff. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Did the Pentecostal church do they have a kind of a hard line on that sort of thing? Wizards and witches and fiction, that that sort of oh yeah, like my pastor, he was like, It's funny because I heard 
heard the other day he had a, a, a heart attack or a stroke while he was preaching. Mm-hmm. And it's he used to brag about like how he's never been to the doctor in, in 30 years and how people do go the, to the doctor. They don't have enough faith to, oh, to heal them. He, he, hated, he hated Christmas. He hated Mother's Day. Anything that had even a touch of secular, like it, if it wasn't for God specifically, if it was just for like the world, worldly, whatever, that he just had so much hate in his heart that as much as it like kind of sucks for me to say this, or does seem kind of fitting for you to be dealing with heart issues at this moment, given how, how hate-filled you, you, you were, you know? It definitely so. does sound like he should have gone to the doctor. Maybe that not going to the doctor in 30 years wasn't necessarily a good thing for right. him. He's in a coma. Literally a few days ago, I, I heard that by accident. Right. That's That's... Given how emotionally charged the services are, like you describe, it's so easy to picture somebody, a preacher, having a heart attack, getting so amped up if they had heart issues. So, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Given all of that, church pretty much was the center of your life. It was everything. Right. I was getting to the point where like, it was something that I was even willing to die for. Like I could picture that I was having those sort of, I don't want to say like a persecution complex, but I, I could... I was getting to that point emotionally. That's how Mm -hmm. deep in it was. Did your congregation, I mean, I don't want to have you speak for Pentecostals as a whole, but Mm -hmm. did your congregation view, did they have sort of a persecution mentality that they were persecuted by the world? That there might be a point of with the the rapture or the tribute, you know, that there would be the world against the righteous sort of thing. Right. There's like a typical sort of story that gets told that eventually, you know, the world is pretty much going to shit. And like, at a certain point, it's just going to be us, the faithful that, that are raptured. And it's important for you to have your, your salvation in order. And I remember them making like a very big deal about that. Like, sorry, I don't want to go too far ahead. I want to answer your question. Did I? No, please continue. It was interesting. Definitely a persecution complex. They felt that when gay marriage was passed and there's a bunch of things that they reacted to like, oh, yeah, these are the signs of the end times, that type yeah. of thing. So why don't you tell me about your leadership, the congregation of the youth leaders and the pastor. You described the pastor right. as being filled with hate. So that already kind of paints a little bit of a picture of his personality, his reactions to things. Would you say that that was standard? Yeah, leadership, my position, or just like the structure of it, like how it was. Either or or both. Yeah, I wasn't really, uh, you know, a high ranking member. I was sort of, people would call me the young pastor. I was very, I I knew my Bible pretty well and I I preached a lot for sure. But the the structure of the leadership was you had the bishop at the top and Mm -hmm. you had elders, you had evangelists who were, you know, typically women, but with some some Mm -hmm. spiritual authority. And then you had missionaries who were a little bit beneath them and then everyone else. Okay. So the top person was called a bishop, the top man. And I assume it was a man. Is that? Yes. Okay. And then you've got the, did you say evangelicals? Those are the, those are the ones that could be women, you said, but there was somebody beneath them, beneath Um, the, the evangelists. Okay. The evangelists. All right. Yeah. What kind of authority did the bishop have? Did the bishop interact with the the regular people or was that kind of more the purview of the evangelists? 
No, I think for the most part, he was pretty accessible. He didn't really make himself far removed. It was pretty much a, a big family, at least if that's what they tried to to imitate. Mm-hmm. So, you know, during dinner time, he would sort of sit with his with the elders. We weren't really allowed to bother him too much. Everyone kind of had their own section. And it was if you were if you had a spiritual need, they were pretty accessible. It wasn't closed off. OK, the other person I spoke to mentioned that in order to make a major life decision mm-hmm. in her church, you needed to speak to the bishop or the elders about that, have a meeting mm-hmm. with them, and they would tell you what their opinion was. They would say yes or no, or they would try and guide you one way or the other. Was that also true of where where you went? Yeah, I think to an extent, it was like very, it was encouraged that you, if you're going through a divorce, if you were having issues to take it up with the pastor. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to, as long as it was someone in authority. It depended on how big the the, the issue was uh-huh sure for me when i eventually left i didn't tell anyone but my grandparents who were the main people taking me there my right um they were pretty much the only ones that i told when i left i got phone calls people kept calling me hassling me come back come back we miss you blah 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 but it it was encouraged for me to take it up with with the higher people but at that point i was ready to just make my split right so you never had a situation where you were trying to make a life decision about college or do you want to take a job somewhere and you needed to to go over it with them? Oh, for sure. But it was more like they kind of forced it on you. For example, there was like a lot of women. I, I'm gay. There's There were a lot of women at the church that wanted me to marry their daughters and they kept putting a lot of pressure on me to do so. It was pretty much discouraged to go off and get higher education. That was another thing that was sort of seen of the world, of the devil, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. There were, I want to, did, did, I, did, I, did I answer that? Did I address that question? Mostly, yeah. So it, it could happen. It could happen. Oh, so, yeah. Another thing that I wanted to say, sorry. It's like, sure, go ahead, go ahead. Like, I remember when I was like first starting to like express some doubts that I was having. That was like a big issue that I remember taking up with to the pastor himself. One of the few times that I like went to him directly with it. Right. And I remember the leadership is very intolerant. And when you express doubts as one as people do, right. even the most faithful people, it was met with this, I'm going to throw all of these Bible verses at you. I'm not really going to address the, the central issue. You need to take this up with God. This is a personal thing that you need to work, work through on your spiritual journey. Hmm. And a few weeks later, I remember him calling me. He did it twice, two separate services, a youth service on Friday and on Sunday, where he pointed his finger at me directly and he said satan i rebuke you that's like a big thing in pentecostalism they really go hard for like Possession. casting out demons yeah i've had a, I've, I have a few like exorcism stories too oh my god yeah just wild wild stuff man so do you remember what the doubt you had was not important i'm just curious was it 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 doesn't it doesn't seem worthy of public shaming, <laughs> whatever it was. Yeah, I remember it, looking back. It's like so benign. I was having questions about with the music and the worship service. Could we just tone it down a little bit and not have it be so emotional? Can we just have a a service where it's like, hey, like I think I think you're playing into this a little too much. Could we have like a deep more. <laughs> like theological like I'm I'm probably like 14 15 at the time and I'm like this to me seems so ludicrous could we just does the music have to be an element is this really what I I can't picture in my mind a person like Jesus Christ worshiping 
engaging in this type of lunacy. And it was, I was sort of attacking like the main thing about <laughs> Pentecostalism that makes them who That's, they are. Exactly. That's, and I'm sorry if it came across wrong that I was laughing, but it seems like something a 14 or a 15 year old would be like, this is just ridiculous. Like you're pointing out the truth, right? Yeah. But you don't realize what an attack it would be necessarily on his whole thing on the whole yeah and I I just felt like it was one of the few moments it was the first moment in my life actually where I felt like okay this is me being a man like this is me standing up for what I don't believe in against these people that are acting like basically children like it was at the point where I couldn't I could not believe what I was seeing and what I was believing right so you mentioned that you're gay yeah. Did you know at the time while you were in the church that that you were gay or did you not realize that until afterward? Oh, no, I, re- I was sometimes I wonder if that was the thing that I was trying to fix in the first place that led me to get baptized at 11, which is when I started taking it really seriously. Right. Yeah. I think growing up in a very just generally conservative household, Mm -hmm. the awareness that I had at maybe 10 or 11 when puberty first happens, you know, right. That, oh shit, like I'm feeling feelings that are gay. Like I was even scared to put that word to it, but right. Right. You know, if you know, kid, it was very much this thing that I was from the, when I first acknowledged that I was having those feelings, I was like, you already knew just homophobic, just trying to destroy it. Right. So you already knew in the environment you were in, you had been taught already so thoroughly that you knew immediately, this is not, I can't do this. This Uh, is not going to be a safe, this is not a good idea. I don't even know, like that, that shame, that inner torment, that was sort of defining like my whole Christian experience. And it's, and it's still a theme now, you know, it's de- religion has definitely left pretty big scar over my sexuality, I will say. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see how that would be for sure. Did you ever bring it up with, with your leadership or did you just know that was not, I shouldn't go there? You said there were people who were trying to marry you off and right. how old were you when you left? Like 16? I was 15 when I when I left officially. So from that church, they were trying to match make for marriage. Yeah, like it was uh, like, oh, you should talk to Sister Sarah. You guys would be a good match. Just that kind of, oh, let's let, let's sit you down next to each other. Let's let's try to manufacture this somehow. Definitely, I would I would, I, don't, I think coercive is maybe too strong, but it was definitely a lot of pressure. Right. Adults right. do this thing to teenagers. They kind of like sit them down, kind of talk to them a certain way. It, it's very you you know when an, an adult is trying to get you to do something. Well, of course, yeah. I mean, teenagers are smart. And I I can't imagine they were that subtle. So you never brought it up. You know, there were a few times where they would have these these things called tarrying services where it's not very well known, but pretty much anything can happen at these at these type of type of services. It's reserved until the end of the preaching when they do like the altar calls or, you know, they actually oh. want to get saved type of Dang. thing. Okay, I see. Let, let so... me break that down. Some It's actually pretty tied to the theology. Yeah. In Pentecostalism, what differentiates it from other denominations is that they believe in like two separate baptisms. So mm-hmm. they quote a lot from this verse, Acts 2.38, where basically they say like, look, there's three steps. If you want to secure your salvation, you need to repent of your sins. You need to be baptized in the name of Jesus, not in Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Right. They make a big point about in Jesus's name. 
the the really? unifying theory that there's only one god right 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 okay and then the third baptism is the quote baptism of the holy spirit and that's where like the speaking in tongues thing the element right comes into right okay all so, right and so they were really stressing that last part to me i'm sorry i kind of lost my train of thought what was the question we were talking about tarrying services and they right, were right, stressing right. that last part so is that during the tarrying services that when the confirmed members they all sort of speak in tongues they have the baptism of the holy spirit is that right I know, okay. I know. I know. I got my, my thought back. I was trying to connect it to like the homosexuality aspect. Oh, okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, yeah. So the tearing services was where you are supposed to receive the second baptism, the speaking in tongues. Right. You know, and, just, and it has to be. Just as a quick question, I, I don't want to derail you, but is that something that you're expected to do like every time that, you know, or nearly every time to rebaptize yourself? That's a interesting question. Basically, you have to do it one time, uh-huh. but it has to be very, someone has to be a witness to that. Right. So that you can then be confirmed so that you can like be on the choir. There's a whole other level of membership that you come into once people recognize that you've received that baptism. Okay. All right. So there were times during the services where like, in the middle of that chaos, someone might suspect you, oh, you in particular, you have a lesbian or gay demon on you and I'm going to sort of pull you aside and do an exorcism on you wait 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 wait. so there's a particular type of demon that does that yes there's a so apparently demons specialize (laughs) Stacy there is a demon for everything in Pentecostal if you didn't know (laughs) there is a demon for for cancer a demon for arthritis I've heard so many so many demons Wow. Okay. Um, See, all right. That is new information. Right. So basically, we're at the altar. They're in the pews, the leaders, the elders, the bishop. They're leading these services. Again, it plays into that very hyper emotional environment. If a pastor at one point in that service, in that service, feels like God is speaking to him to exercise on you, he can make a very big scene out of it. And mind you, this is in the middle of, let's say I'm the one that's being called out in, in the altar. Right. There are adults, children, you know, speaking in tongues, writhing around on the floor, running around, you know, chanting. It's very, you know, screaming at you, telling you you're gonna burn in hell. Like I can still kind of picture their faces. Awful. And I'm screaming because like, I'm worried about, like, I haven't received my second baptism yet. I need, I remember screaming for hours, hours on end. I'm sweating a lot. They're like anointing me with like holy oil. After, I remember after those services, well, one o'clock in the morning, I was just shattered emotionally. So me taking it up with them about my gayness, like it was something that I was occasionally suspected of and and exercised on for mm-hmm. but it was never something that I brought up to them it was always something that like, I called for assistance for on like this random Christian hotline number that I found you know right right well I definitely after after you described what happens when they suspect you of course of course you wouldn't bring it up right it would take if they actually knew for a fact they'd never leave you alone you'd be the target every service every sunday wow that's that's intense it was just an insane amount looking back 
the thing that enrages me the most is being so young and losing your youth to these people, this organization, and the the sheer amount of fear that I was in every day. Because I was literally operating from the mentality of Jesus could literally come back at any moment. And right. I'm, I have not received the second baptism yet. I'm in trouble. My salvation, my, my mortality, everything is in danger. Right, right. And they cannot find out that I'm gay. Like, it, they, they made it seem, and again, this is like another, I have to break down the theology here. There are certain gifts that you are believed to possess when you have the spirit, mm-hmm. uh, the, the second baptism. One of them is the gift of discernment or prophecy, or there's like a whole list of them. Right. And the one that I was most afraid of was like the people who had the discernment gift or whatever, what have you. Right. Because it felt like they could literally like read into my soul. Like they could, even though I didn't want them to, to know that about me, they knew all of my sins. But looking back on it now, I realized it was because they had created such a culture of, sh- of shame and guilt. It was easy for me to, to think that they knew because they made it, made it seem like everything I did was wrong. So I played pretty easily into that that fear culture, if you will. Right. Well, it's kind of messing with people's minds, isn't it? Giving them the idea that a certain select number of us are going to have this special power, this Mm-hmm. superhuman power to read minds or read souls and they're they're going to know your secrets right i mean it it's kind of convenient isn't it for an organization who believes that you have to police yourself so rigidly that people also believe there's this sort of spiritual undercover police force yeah you you wouldn't be too far off yeah. actually mm, wow okay So do you remember what the first thing was? I mean, I know you said when you were 14, 15, you approached the bishop about the services themselves. Do you remember what the first thing was that made you question that? I mean, because you were gay, but you weren't necessarily challenging their belief that that was wrong, Mm -hmm. right? It seems like you sort of internalized that idea that you were a certain way, but that was also you shouldn't be right. Well, do you remember what the first thing was that made you think maybe you don't agree with what they they're telling you? Well, I think it was a lot of, a lot of things. I think it's a lot of little things that lead to someone saying, you know, what, I'm finished. Right. Um, I would have to say, again, I took my faith very seriously and I wanted to share that with other people. Mm-hmm. But upon sharing that faith with other, other people, I came across these very strong challenges that people would make to me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have an answer for them. And I kind of prided myself on my intellect. I had a very intellectual, rational approach to Christianity. And I wanted to engage with that specific type of person. So when I found out that, oh, this person actually knows a lot more about the Bible than I do. Right. Like I didn't I didn't even c- consider that before. Well, where did this book come from? Why am I basing my entire life on this? How do I know that it's true? Mm-hmm. So it was through this process of sharing my faith and being challenged and like doing research and finding out, oh, this wasn't really true. There are these contradictions. It was like a slow process of, okay, I can't be a fundamentalist because the earth is definitely not 6,000 years old. Right. So maybe the Old Testament needs to go away. Okay, let me see if I can preserve the New Testament. Ugh, New Testament isn't that great either. We don't know. There's not a whole lot of historical evidence for Jesus. There's not a whole lot of reason to believe that he's actually the person that said those things. The gospels were written far after he was alive. I think I was down to one book, the book of Revelation. 
foundation. I think I just kept cutting, cutting, cutting. You know, I've, I've heard that story many times where it's your faith just starts to weaken to a certain point where it's like, okay, mm. like I can't defend this anymore. I'm an atheist. Right. So would you say that's how you define yourself today? I would say that I define myself as an atheist second, but as a humanist, a secular humanist first, mm-hmm. because I think it's far more important, especially in the world that we're living in today. People don't care about what you don't believe in. And mm-hmm. I don't want to be defined by something that I'm not. Right. Atheist, that's still an attachment to the word God. I would rather define myself in the affirmative as a humanist and allow that philosophy to kind of help me live a good life, help me relate to other people and, and go from there. I don't have all the answers, but you know, you take it one day at a time. Well said. Well said. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to to share? I mean, about your time or about your congregation or anything that you witnessed that you you just want people to know? Anything you want to get off your chest, feel free. Oh gosh, other than like fuck those people like <laughs> tremendously. Like I feel like I've lost. Sorry, I'm laughing. I, I shouldn't laugh, but the visual is not going to be in the podcast. But you say that with a smile in your face, like you know, it was kind of it was amusing. So I could tell, kind of move past it, but for sure. Again, I've developed an ability to like laugh at the trauma because it is very absurd, and there are parts of it that are genuinely hilarious to me. Right, but it still is but, trauma. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Um in the process of I'm still recovering from it. There are certain things where it's, oh, why do I feel bad when when things are going right for me? And it's because, oh, they pretty much brainwashed me to think it's the devil's blessing, you know, when you leave, that if things go, if things go right for you, it's because you're one of his his children, you know, you've 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 lost. You you're gone. And that's why things are going well for you. It's because you're 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 no longer I, I don't I don't know how to how to how to best articulate that. It's like literally the devil's blessing. That's the best way to describe it. So, so the eyes that you're lost, and yeah. uh, therefore the the devil's giving you what you want. Right, exactly. As far as like, final final thoughts, you have to take it one day at a time. When you first leave, your sense of identity, your sense of meaning, your goals, your your salvation. You know, one of the ways in which Christianity is packaged to a lot of people is it's not a religion; it's a personal relationship with your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Blah blah blah. Right. And it, and it really is like losing a relationship. Sure. It, it was a emotional security blanket for me, and there are times when I do feel like genuinely lost. To quote some of the verses they used to throw at me, but it's not because I'm a bad person. It's because I grew up around bad people who used religion as a weapon against me. And I sometimes use that religion as a weapon against myself in terms of my sexuality. You you have to take it one day at a time. You have to put, you have to really invest in yourself. Don't allow anyone in the name of any God or political group take away your individual power. Don't let other people think for you and, and tell you that to enjoy pleasure, to enjoy life is inherently a bad thing. Thank you for joining us today. Please be sure to subscribe to get the latest episodes as they're released. Well said again.